you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church family. Such a pleasure to be with you again this morning. Um, I realized as Don and I were sitting here and we were hugging friends and uh, fellow believers in this church family, just such a warm, um, encouraging start to a time of worship in the presence of God because the family of God has a common denominator. We all belong to Jesus. We've expressed our faith in him, our hope in him, and our unreserved obedience to him. Now, the last part is a bit of a trick, isn't it? Obedience is a process that is both learned, it needs to be reflected, and we need to adapt. And this morning, we are considering um, these words as a fuel towards mission endeavor. Because the Church of Christ is full of the hope of the gospel of Jesus, and is commanded to make disciples of all nations, as we read, And what fuels it is really this recognition of the God who loves us and our pleasure of being able to reflect and share and give that same love to those who are around us. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will bring you glory today, that we will both hear your word and we will be very quick to respond to it, meaning that we will do the work that we must do before you, be willing to change, adapt, pursue you. Thank you for being a God who pursues us first and best. And we would pray that your spirit would be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. When religion is in first place, leaders become self-righteous and followers become hypocrites. It's a good summary, isn't it, by Andy Stanley, of when Christianity can fall into the same trap as any world religion. When we think that there is something for us to do that would make God love us or like us or bless us more than he already has in Jesus. Then it becomes a pattern of works that is really empty of the best part of what Jesus Christ has come to give us which is a relationship that is forever with him. We are at a disadvantage when we use the word love, as a matter of fact. We're coming soon to February 14th, popularly called Valentine's Day, or a day to express love. And it is full of all kinds of craziness, in my opinion. Some of it's very enjoyable. It's not that all craziness is lacking joy. But what I'm saying is when we use the word love, we use it rather cavalierly. Because we refer to so many things through it, we can use it flippantly, with wrong motives and with terrible intentions, because we're going to give someone a valentine, perhaps, but what we expect is to get one back. What's the point of giving it away if you don't get anything in return, right? A, A reciprocity, at least, that's there. And maybe we're of that kind that just tries to outdo each other. You know, one upmanship, as it were. And where's the advantage in that? The problem with the word love is it's a highly relational love, but it can actually mask a very selfish motive. 
I'm doing this so that I receive from you what it is I want. And therefore, it really is empty of what love is in the first place. Because it is a relational word, and we use it, as I've said, somewhat cavalierly because we love ice cream, and we love our dog, oh, and we love our wife. Hopefully not in that order. And, and hopefully with different degrees of meaning and value. When Jesus is asked a question, because he silences the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe in the promise of life uh, in the hands and the power of God, the Pharisees who are also uh, listening to Jesus because the crowds are following him and they're actually very jealous of his influence among people. And so they send one of their lawyers, a person who's schooled in the law of Israel, but also someone who is adept, adept at being able to defend people before an accusation in the religious court. And so he comes to Jesus to test him, is what we read in verse 35, his background for what Ian just read for us, and he poses a question to Jesus. It seems so innocent on the surface. What is the greatest commandment? They think they're going to trap him. They think that if he answers one way, they'll respond another. They've got all of this worked out in their own heads. How to argue him in the ground and prove that he isn't who he claims to be. But Jesus does something quite remarkable. There's only a few instances in the scripture, this is one of them, where Jesus answers a question that is posed to him directly. Usually he twists it and gives him a question back. Or, under, or exposes what is underneath the motive of the question and embarrasses them, silences them. Or says, well, I'll answer you that if you answer me this. And they can't because it would get them in a similar problem uh, that they're trying to put him into and the whole conversation ends. So there's no trickery here. What is the most, com most important commandment in the law is the question that's posed. And two things might surprise us, just as I've said, that Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't redirect, he answers them straight up. But what he actually does is he redirects the commandment from a task to a relationship. Because while he says you need to love God this way, the point is you are loving a God who responds to you in like kind. Actually, the truth of the scripture and the gospel is he initiates the relationship. You cannot get to him, so he comes to you. He is the God who is with Emmanuel, as we just celebrated through uh, Christmas. And the word Jesus uses is the most common and exacting Greek word for love in the New Testament. Agape is the love that chooses its object as an act of its will and pours itself out in devotion and benefit for that same object. So when we say we love God, how do we love God? Well, we love God with a devotion and with a purpose that says, I'm willing not to have any benefit back. As a matter of fact, whatever benefit I have, I want to invest for your glory. That's what agape love really means. Now, who doesn't want to be loved like that? Who doesn't want a spouse who loves them selflessly? not selfishly to have something in return and not in any kind of manipulative way, but spends themselves for the benefit alone of the person they are devoted themselves to love. 
It's a, it's a brilliant word. What it means is there's intentionality, and at the beginning, ahead of intentionality, there's choice. In other words, you choose what you're going to love. And then with intention, you devote yourself to give them benefit. So will is engaged, you see. It has to be relational, but it is the means of demonstrating or giving love that is both selfless and to the point of sacrifice. You are willing that they flourish at your personal cost. That's what agape, love, means. However, this kind of love is not reserved for exceptionally heroic acts, because we would think, wow, you know, you can't do that too often. There wouldn't be any of you left. So you need to sort of parcel it out in pieces. But that's not how love thinks. Love is all in, and it's constant and consistent. It's not describing the occasional expensive gesture. Rather, it is a constant of the relationship. Love seeks consistently, actively, intentionally, and constantly the benefit of the person being loved. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? That's agape love. And Jesus says, this is how you are to love God. And he defines it then in summary, and he says, you are to love him, and there are three measures provided. Measures of heart, soul, and mind. So let's just tease that apart a little bit. We are to love God, heart, soul, and mind. You think, wow, heart. Uh, Proverbs says that we may think we are doing the right thing, but the Lord always knows within our hearts. In other words, the heart is sort of the center Uh, the core of your being. Not only does Proverbs 21.2 say that, but Psalm 4.4 instructs us, but each of you had better tremble and turn from your sins, silently searching your heart as you lie in bed, meaning it's the deep recess of your being. It's what you are when no one is looking and no one sees and no one knows it's the you inside. Now, to fulfill this command requires us to love God deeply in the core of our being as the greatest good we can pursue and the deepest love that we can give. And this, friends, is no surprise. God doesn't want outward shows that are missing inward focus and relationship. Because you know how easy it is for us to be full of pretense. We can pretend to be doing something. We can use lovely words. We can even show demonstrations of affection and actually have a heart that is really quite cold towards the person. You know what I'm saying. And create confusion because we appear on the surface to be doing something, but our heart is somewhere else altogether. But God himself has designed us to be his friend, his companion. He placed us at the beginning in a garden, Adam and Eve, and he made them to be caretakers, keepers. Now, I imagine what that means is, Adam St. Eve, I think that tree would look much better over there. And they got busy and got to work and moved it. You know, that's what gardening is, isn't it? It's getting rid of what you don't want. It's putting in place what you do want. And sometimes the things you want don't do as well as the things you don't want. You know what I mean? They're called weeds. And a gardener's work is never done because six months later it has to be done all over again. If it's not, it belongs to the wild. But God made us those keepers and God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Isn't that a lovely thought? 
I don't know about you, but I love the cool of the evening, you know, on a long, lovely summer's day. I imagine when we get to Sri Lanka, our first experience will be as we go on this mission trip, <gasps> no snow, <laughs> no cold. And then we'll say shortly after, oh, it's awfully hot here. You know how human temperament is. And we'll enjoy the cool of what? The evening. When the heat is out of the day and it's just lovely. That's when God spoke with Adam and Eve. Isn't it wonderful? I hope there's going to be a video library or at least an audio one where we can go and listen to some of the conversations. Wouldn't you like that just to be eavesdropping on, no pun intended, eavesdropping, but, but be listening to what God said to both of them? Because he intended them to be companion, those with whom he shared his heart and explained his way and enjoyed this reciprocal relationship of joy and delight. So what he wants is us. What he wants with us and from us is this deep relationship in which we express our love for him and he, his satisfaction and love for us. For us. Then Jesus, as not only is it the issue of the heart, that depth of our being, but it's also the soul which is frequently linked in the scripture to emotions, as we often link heart to our emotions. So we'll notice there's some overlap of these terms by definition. And the Psalm 143 verse 6 puts it this way, Then I lift my hands in prayer because my soul is a desert, thirsty, for water from you. Do you hear that? There's a desire from them. There's an emotional expression of, I need to have you in my life. I need you to be the one who fuels me, satisfies me, helps me. But the soul is engaged. And this creates a feeling of great desire that is there. And Jesus then adds the final piece, our minds, our thinking, our reasoning, our deciding, the analyzing part of us that is often only known to us alone. Psalm 139, verse 17, reminds us of the workings of our minds when the, the writer says, you know when I am resting or when I'm working, and from heaven you discover my thoughts. Now, that's a bit scary, to be honest with you. He says in another place, you know, before there's even a word fully formed in our mouths, God knows it. So when we're before him, we can't sort of fudge and pretend what we're thinking hasn't happened and isn't true. It's there. It's all known to him. There's no hiding from him. The night and the day are the same to him, right? He just knows it all. And if we're struggling with who we are and our relationship with him, that will be of slim comfort. But if we're not and we're at rest and at peace with him through the grace of Jesus, that is an incredible, soothing, comforting truth. I can't figure out my thinking, and you know what I'm struggling with. I don't have to explain myself, because I'm having trouble even understanding it. He knows it all. And while the list seems to push the pieces apart, to see all of me is to love all of God, Jesus then adds this word repetitively for emphasis. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind this expansiveness of my life for him. It's comprehensive. Now, it's utterly defeating if we think that this is a demand for perfection, which in its context of the Old Testament, it is because you must remember 
that Jesus was being asked by the rabbis of the day, the leading argumenters of the word, you know, having all of this debate, what is the, the whole summation of the law? And Jesus answers them. So here's the point, is Jesus actually saying to the church, this is now you, how you have to live. You need to try harder. Do you see the construct here, what we can fall into, that we could see this greatest command and fail to understand it's the greatest command of what the Old Testament. It's what all the prophets and the laws hang on is this principle of truth, relationship with God based on loving him, heart, soul, mind, and strength completely and what? Perfectly. And now we're in trouble. Why? Well, try it for a day and tell me. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not being facetious. The point that I'm really leading you to is that just as a farmer has the right to expect the seeds he planted to give the fruit that comes from them and not something else, God has the right to expect from us being that we're in his likeness and image that we return to him that which he is worthy of and made us capable to give him. But we can't. And you know why, don't you? As we're honest with ourselves, because we're deeply broken. And we might start a new initiative, you know, it's just sort of past New Year's Day, as it were, you know, we're just 21 days in, three weeks, so how's it going? All of your New Year's resolutions still in place, or have you broken them all already? You know what I'm saying? Good intention, I'm going to exercise and walk every day, and suddenly three weeks in, oh, wow, I'm not doing so well. Even those things we want to do for good that we know we will receive, we don't do. Well, what about the God of heaven saying, this is what I want from you? And suddenly we discover we just can't do it. The answer to loving God with all that we are heart, soul, mind, and strength consistently, constantly, intentionally, is that we have been loved first by God himself. He gave himself for us. What happens at the end of the gospel, and this pre-shadows the event, is that Jesus completely fulfills the law of God on our behalf. He relieves us of a burden, and we can relieve ourselves of the burden by trusting that he's actually done it. Which means not that we shouldn't love God. I'm not suggesting that. It means that we do not need to love God as the basis of God loving us. He's proven his love, and he invites us into that love, but not as a basis of earning anything from him. Our debt is paid. Our obligation is fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean we can be sloppy. It doesn't mean we should not care. We, it doesn't mean we should go, oh, well, then it just doesn't matter, because then we would be slipping into what? A, an antinomianism, as theologians call it, meaning we do whatever we want because Jesus has set us free, and then it just doesn't matter. And what that means is we're playing loose with our salvation and not allowing the work of grace to transform us into the people God has designed us to be. 
See, when religion is in first place, leaders become self-righteous and followers become hypocrites. Andy Stanley said it so well. If we reduce this command to something we need to do by our effort so God will love us more or he will give us what we need or we will get from him what we want, we've reduced this whole process to religion. Because what he wants is not from us. He wants us. You're not going to add anything to him. You know, Jesus himself, ruling in heaven as he is, has never run to the banister and said, I'm so glad SCF is still with me. As if we're giving him something, you know, what is he going to do? Drop in and say, you know, I would really like a dosa. I've never had one of those. I had one in Sri Lanka. I'm going to have another one, I hope. They're very good. But why am I making this sort of sarcasm? Because if we imagine that God wants something from us, it ends up being on the equivalent of we doing something for him he can't do for himself. Think about it. It's ludicrous. He is completely satisfied in and of himself. That's by nature who he is. He's God. He lacks nothing. But what does he want from us? What he wants from us is us living in his grace and living out his love as a demonstration of the power of the gospel. Read by everyone around us, seen by him. But you see, if you try and keep this in your strength, there's one of three things will happen. Number one, you'll quit. This is just too hard. I'm never going to get it done. I can't love you up to that measure. Secondly, you'll pretend to be better than you are. That's called hypocrisy. Well, you know, I'm improving, but I have a little ways to go, and that's self-justifying. Or thirdly, this will drive you back to Jesus, and you'll say to him, I can't do it. That's what the law does. It brings you to the point that you need help. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. Walk with me. We'll work this out together. I've paid your debt. I'm very happy with you as my companion. Let's walk in life together. You see, there's more. He asks us to do not only this first thing, but then he adds what I would call the kicker. Because if we could just quantify this religiously speaking between us and God, that would be marvelous. But then he says this, and the second command is just like it or, or similar to it. You need to love your neighbor, the person around you, just like you love yourself. And right away we're going to say, well, that's problematic because actually I don't love myself all that deeply. I've got a few problems with myself, truth be told. And we want to protest. But listen, I want to, I want to say this. If you're saying, I don't love myself because I've got some work to do, you're actually loving yourself because you want the work to get done. Do you understand? A little convoluted, but I think it's logical. If you can define that you're not what you want to be, but you want to be better than you are, that's a kind of self-love. It's an inner talking to yourself in the mind, and it's a desire to be growing and developing. But don't you see the capacity to find our failures and express our dissatisfaction is, as I'm saying to you, a kind of self-love in the sense that we want to be better for ourselves and be better to ourselves and we want to be improving, changing, and the capacity of leaving what we were and striving for something that's better. Now, that's a loving act. 
In the same way that you do that for someone who's around you, you want them to be better and you're supporting them in their choices that they're making. And while the emotion might on the surface feel negative, the outcome is to choose to be better. And that's a kind of self-love. So how can we fulfill the command? Well, Jesus tells the story in another place and he shames the religious of the days called the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's the Samaritan whom they despise that actually demonstrates that he's caring for people who are around him. It's the person he sees who has a need in front of him and he, at his own expense, cares for the need. That's agape love. And it's the Samaritan who does it. It's part of the reason I'm so pleased to go to Sri Lanka as you're working with the marginalized and underprivileged because you're helping people who do not have ability to help themselves move or improve out of their circumstance. It's very, very good. It's agape love. You friends, this is the heart of mission. It is the motive to go, act, care, and benefit others who are far from Christ and don't understand the apex, the goodness of his love towards us, and we want to demonstrate how it works, who Jesus is, all that he's done. It's in us to give, to choose to love our neighbors, to love the lost as Jesus does, and to join him on the mission that he came. After all, it does say this in the scripture, right? God so loved the world that he gave, there's the initiative, his only son. That's mission. It's God's mission for us, and he says, join me on my mission wherever you can. And the result of that will be, we get a taste of it in the Revelation of John, chapter 7, and here are the words. After this, I saw a large crowd with more people than could be counted, and they were from every race, every tribe, every nation and language, and they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, and they wore white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands, and they shouted... Our God who sits on the throne has the power to save his people and so does the Lamb. Oh, I can just imagine them joining us as we sang this morning. We will join them. It's the future that we're called to. In a few hours, we've already prayed. You've already prayed and blessed us, your pastor and I, who has led you as a church family into the mission field and opportunity in Sri Lanka to give children and their families hope and help. We'll be going on yet one more mission trip. It's nothing new to you folks. You've heard of it, you've seen it, you're invested in it. Many of you have gone, many of you have supported the effort. Good for you, we should be doing that. This team will care for orphaned and widows, for youth and for kids, for those less fortunate. And they will be serving in your name and the name of the Lord Jesus as they do so, loving as they're able in the places that they visit, seeking to raise communities out of poverty and seeking to train pastors to lead more effectively their churches under the headship of Jesus. I want to commend you for all of that and all that you've been doing and continue to do. It's right. But let us understand we're not doing it so God would like us more. He cannot love you more. We're going to celebrate that at the Lord's table in just a minute. He cannot. He's done it all. So when you serve, you're not doing, do you like me now? You're saying, oh God, 
Your love is so amazing. It has so gripped my heart and changed the whole direction of my life. You've moved me from darkness to light, from death into life. I want to do anything I can to let this message be known and your glory be shared in the world. That's the motivation of the believer who really understands the gospel. I can't not be part of it. It's the thing that matters. So let us commit ourselves to this end. That we will be people of faith who first say, I could not make you love me. I'm amazed that you chose to love me anyway. I could not appeal to you and promise my way to a future because I had no strength or capacity, but you have changed my future. You did not decide to stay content in your own glory, but you chose to send your son and showcased your love and goodness in an unfathomable way. That Jesus, perfect, holy, good, unblemished, would be willing to lay down his life to pay my debt so I could be your child. No one can make this up. No one could ever knock on heaven's door and say, I've got an idea. I think this is what you should do for humanity. It would never occur to us. But he chose in the fullness of time to send his son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those under the law, redeem them, buy them back. That's love. Let's commit ourselves to love him because he first loved us. And to love him as he's worth. It may be this morning that as you're here and listening, you realize you've not made a commitment to this God. You've heard the story, you've understood some of it, but you've never personally engaged with it. Why not do it today? Why not move from a place of being interested to a place of being committed? Of a, of a way of simply saying, Jesus, you know who I am. I'm right on the point of saying to you that I, I want to commit myself to you, but I'm not even sure I can follow through on that commitment. So what I'm asking for you is to help me in every way you know how, and I don't even know how to act. But I am asking, be my Lord. I confess my need of you. And under your leadership, I'll turn from my old life and walk in the life you lead me. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Father, you know our heart. There's not one of us that's hidden from you. And you have not given us a list of commands whereby we can earn our way to heaven. You've given us Jesus who's paid the debt and welcomes us into his family. As we celebrate that now at the table of the Lord, at communion, 
we would pray that you would work deeply within our hearts, renew within our minds, renew and bring to our attention all you've done, that we might receive with gratitude the elements and give you the glory you're worthy of in every aspect of our life. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.